0: This time, I feel like the Lord wants to minister to some different things that He's touching on uh, the, uh, in this in this message. So we'll just be sensitive to Him. You know, sometimes we have this idea of the sermon and then ministry time, and I want us to kind of see the whole sermon as ministry time, and we're going to kind of approach it that way. So Kathleen, why don't you come up and pray over me? And uh, let's give this time to the Lord. Your word is spirit and
1: life, Lord. Hmm. Without it, we die. Hmm. And we know that whatever we think about, we end up doing. So, Lord, I just release this word to take root in us, to chase away the lies of the devil that just paralyzes us from having faith. I thank you, Lord, for Gordy, who is just so much a a servant. He just serves you, Jesus, every day I see him in his prayer closet just just waiting on you, Lord. So I just pray that this would be a totally transformational word for all of us, that, that one part of it may just quicken one person, but and another part we'll quicken another person but as a result of this empowering scripture that we would just rise up mm. in you to do the works and see the word made manifest in us in Jesus' name amen,
0: amen. thanks son so today we begin our summer teaching series this is going to take us right to the end of august It's going to usher us right into our new building. And uh, when we say thermostats and thermometers, or thermostats or thermometers, and you notice I have both up on the screen, we're talking about the church being an influence in society. A thermometer or a thermostat sets the temperature, a thermometer reads the temperature. And the church's mandate is is to do both. We need to be good readers of our culture, but we also need to set the temperature of the culture. But sometimes we can default to just reading the culture, where all we do is mirror the culture. So how can we be people who are conversant with the city that we live in, the culture that we live in, in such a way that we're still setting the temperature, that we're still being influences and and haven't succumbed to being influenced. So that's kind of... background behind the the sermon title. And and as I was reflecting on this, I felt that 1 Corinthians was a book that really speaks to uh, a a city church like ours. Corinth was a very urban area, very large city, probably leading city in the Roman Empire, uh, and and a leading city in Greece, Greece. And the letter of Corinthians, Paul's first letter, which is a bit of a misnomer because by reading First Corinthians you'll find out that he'd already written to them before, so I'm not sure if this is second or third or fourth, but it's, it's the first letter that we have record of Paul writing, even though he clearly had corresponded before. And a lot of the issues that they, they struggled with are issues that we struggle with today. So there's nothing new under the sun. So let's look at a little background here. First of all, the the history of the church in Corinth began, of course, through the ministry of Paul and his missionary journeys. And this is your Mediterranean. Remember, Paul came to Christ in this area, going to Damascus. For a long time, he spent uh, in Tarsus and then came to Antioch. And it was from Antioch that he and Barnabas were commissioned on their first missionary journey, which included Galatia. And we just finished that book, uh, the book of Galatians. On his second missionary journey, remember he was coming through this area, and he tried to get into Asia Minor here, and remember the Holy Spirit stopped him, and then he got that Macedonian vision, come on over and help us, and after obeying the Lord, ended up in a riot in Philippi, ended up in jail, but remember because of a very wealthy businesswoman, Lydia, he had a place to stay, and the church in Philippi, a very generous church, was started in Macedonia, here. And then, remember, he went on to... Uh, the next church was Thessalonica. And he got a rough ride there. Sometimes I wonder, Paul, why did you do it? I mean, he just... From, from one jail to the next, one riot to the next. Uh, then he went to Berea. Then he went to Athens. Remember, in this area here. Uh, and then he ended up in Corinth. Now, Corinth, just in perspective, is kind of on a little jut of land between Achaia and Macedonia, all part of modern-day Greece today. Um, and he, he, he went to uh, Corinth as a refugee, running from the last riot he'd been in, not really, Athens. Remember, he'd had that, that address to the Athenians on, on Mars Hill in Athens in chapter 17 of Acts. In an, you'll find this in Acts 18. He goes in. He ends up in, in uh, cor- Corinth, and he meets a Jewish couple named Aquila and Priscilla, who were refugees from Rome. A bunch of Jews had been kicked out of Rome by the by the Caesar, and and uh, they had they were tent makers like Paul. And I think about this: that Paul, he had a trade, and because he had a trade, he met some other people who had a similar trade, and they became good friends. And he didn't have a, a, a lot of financial backup at this point. And so he was spending a lot of his time making his own living, uh, tent making. And on the Sabbath day, he'd go into the synagogue and he would argue with Jews about whether Jesus was the Messiah. And he got some support. But in the, it, as was often the case, he bet, they eventually got the boot. They got kicked out of the synagogue, which seems like a negative thing, but it actually was very positive. Because it really sprung the mission into Corinth. And, and, and I was thinking about that with our circumstances. I really feel that what God is taking us into is into a further sense of aligning ourselves with his mission for our city. And even though it's uncomfortable and the unknown, I, I've, I've been sensing the sense that God, that these words, I'm going to align you more with my mission for the city of Vancouver in this process, not just the actual physical move, but what's going on in our hearts as we go through this move, as Joanna referred to earlier. Well, Aquila and Priscilla and Paul became this core, and some people came to the Lord. The synagogue leader named Crispus, who, by the way, is going to show up in our text today, came to Christ and his whole family, and they were baptized. Um, And then... The, the, um, there was some turbulence, but the Lord appeared to Paul in a vision. And um, he began to be able to devote himself full time to teaching and preaching. Does anybody know why? He was able to start devoting himself full time to teaching and preaching. He was sickle. <laughs> no, nope, because he couldn't, he couldn't do it earlier. He, he had to work. Full time as a tent maker earlier, but two guys showed up Timothy and I believe it was Titus. And they came from Macedonia. And, and if you read, re- and Philippi, and if you, re- if you remember reading from Philippi, they were very generous. So these guys came with a great big offering yeah. from, from Philippi and said, Paul, you shouldn't be spending all your time tent making, you need to be preaching the gospel. And so from that point on, it says he, gave his, he was able to fully devote his time to teaching and preaching while the church exploded and people began to come to Christ and the Lord appeared to him in a vision and he said to him words that I believe he's saying to us today. The Lord said to him in the vision, Paul, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. Nobody will harm you for I have many people in this city. Yeah. It's a good word, eh? So after a period of time, Paul retraced his steps from Macedonia, went back up this way, came down into a place called Ephesus here. Then he went back to Jerusalem and he left Aquila and Priscilla. They actually traveled him with him all the way to Ephesus here. He left them there. He went back to Jerusalem. Then on his third missionary journey, he came and where he was not able to go before, God allowed him to go into Asia and he, he had a very fruitful ministry for about two and a half years in Ephesus. With Aquila and Priscilla the church exploded in Ephesus the church was exploding in Corinth and a guy named Apollos came from Alexandria in Egypt and he came up and Aquila and Priscilla led him to the Lord and he became a very powerful speaker and leader in the church in Ephesus and then Paul and Barnabas or sorry Paul and Aquila and Priscilla sent Apollos to the church in Corinth and some estimates say that the church in Corinth was as large as 60,000 people. It was not a small church. Now, it was small in some ways because they just met in houses and, and hovels and halls and anywhere they could, but it had just, it just was, had expanded so incredibly. And so Apollos comes to Corinth and, and then Paul began to get some... We're not sure if Apollos was still there, but Paul began to get reports that there was problems in Corinth. And I'm so glad there were problems in Corinth. Because if there hadn't been problems in Corinth, we wouldn't have got these beautiful letters that address different issues like sexuality and the gifts of the Spirit and, and the, the, the importance of communion and, and the resurrection. Just so many wonderful teachings. So if you're having problems, remember it's an opportunity for God to show himself and to speak and to reveal more of his character. Now, Corinth was a very unique location. Let's look at it a little closer. This is that same jut of land I was showing you earlier, a little close-up. Here's, here's uh, Macedonia and here's Achaia. So Corinth was on this, this, what's called an isthmus of land, like a strip of land. And it was very strategic because ships would come into here, park at the harbor in Centria, and then they would, if they were small ships, they literally would lift them onto a, a, a rail car a flatbed rail car. They, they had the railroad back then. I don't think they had the steam engine. But they were able to roll these smaller ships across this isthmus over to this. There was another port here. And uh, if the ship was too big, they would take the cargo and just put it on wagons and, and it would go on rail uh, across this strip of land to, to the other harbor. So it was a very international cosmopolitan city. A real center of commerce and trade between uh, the, the, the West, which was Italy and Spain, and the Middle East and the Far East, and vice versa. A lot of traffic. A lot. It was very uh, transient. Does that ring a bell? A lot of people coming and going. One time the Lord gave us a vision of the vineyard being an airport. And I'm not sure I like that. But an airport, how many know it's the happiest and saddest place on earth? I, I, I like going to airport sometime and just watching that. I mean, you go to one part and everybody's crying. And then the other part, ah! everybody's so happy, right? And that's kind of like our church. Um, so there was this sense of coming and going. It was very cosmopolitan, very transient. There was an international fl- influx of cults and religions including Jews, there was 12 different temples to various gods and goddesses, including Apollo. Interesting, because they really liked Apollos. Similar name there, eh? Um, And uh, the most famous was the worship of the goddess Aphrodite, and she was quite prominent. Um, And there's a little bit closer look at it there. There was a a mountain in Corinth called the Agro-Corinth, the Acro-Corinth, which was a originally had the temple of Aphrodite. Now, she was the goddess of sex and love and romance. And it wasn't all bad in terms of what she represented, but, you know, like our day, sex was, was, it was an oversexualized culture. And uh, by the time the New Testament came along, that temple had been destroyed, but the worship of Aphrodite was still very prominent in the city of Corinth, and the temple had been on top of that mountain. And so it's no surprise that sexuality became an uh, an issue in the church in Corinth. And we'll be looking at that a little bit later in the series as we get to chapters 5 and and 6. But Corinth was also very diverse, very diverse city. And many different religions, ethnicities, cultures, and social classes. Influenced by Greek Hellenism, under Roman rule. But it was a very divided community. And Paul had a dream for the church in Corinth. That in a polarized world, the church would be a healing force. The church would be a, unifying, a unified community in, in accordance with Jesus' prayer. Remember, remember, what was Jesus' last prayer? Father, what was he? He prayed for us. He prayed for his disciples Father, that they be one, even as you and I are one. That the world may know. I once heard a sermon preached on that, and they titled it, The Greatest Apologetic. That the world may know that you have sent me. What's the greatest way that the world is going to know that the Father sent Jesus Christ to the earth Jesus said, it's when we with all of our diversity are one body, are one family, are unified, one people. Doesn't mean we're all the same, but in our diversity there's love and there's unity. And there's another uh, statement he made that's very similar to that. By this will all people know that you are my disciples because you love one another. Love one another as I have loved you. By this we'll all know that you are my disciples. Not because you raise the dead, as good as that is. Not because you heal the sick. Not because you have good intellectual arguments of, as to why the resurrection really happened. But the greatest apologetic is by the love you have for one another. That is the greatest testimony to the world that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And that we belong to him. And so that was Paul's dream for Corinth. That was his longing and his desire. But his dream turned into a nightmare as he began to get reports that the church, instead of being a thermostat, that was an agent of healing in the world, was mirroring the culture by being fractured into parties and personality cults. And he describes the situation in our text. Let's all read this together. Paul... ...called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ." Now, before I read on, again, I want to underline that Paul is writing from a broken heart where a dream is turned into a nightmare. And he's writing to a fractured community. A community that complained to, or, or, or claimed to be disciples of Jesus, but they were not loving one another. They were not taking care of one another. They would become fractured and torn. So he's writing from a broken heart. Now, I want you to look at this. Watch very carefully. Watch this in our text. And I'm, I'm going to... Point this out because this happens in the first 10 verses of this chapter. Are you watching? Watch. Okay. You see that? I'll just take that again. Try it again. Some of you missed it. See that? Four times in three verses, he mentions the name. Isn't that interesting? All right. Look at this. Read with me. I always thank my God for you because of His grace given to you in Christ Jesus. For in Him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into His fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, Are you watching? Are you watching? Watch this. Look at this. Isn't that interesting? Whoa. Almost, it depends how you define it, but up to 11 times in 9 verses. Depends how you, if you include his Lord in ours, then it's 11. If you don't want to include that, then it's nine. But, that's a lot of times say, Jesus, Jesus. Now Paul, remember, he's a very affirming guy. And he doesn't like to cut to the jugular just right, right away. He had to do that for the Galatians. But here he's, you know, he's trying to butter me. I like your shirt, nice hairdo. Things are good. So he's affirming their faith. He's affirming that they belong to Jesus, right? But look at the number of times that he mentions the name of Jesus. What's going on here? Well, Paul, the first step towards being a unified people is not trying to agree on everything. But the first step to being a unified people is to find our common center. What is it that brought us together? And what is it that has brought us together? Is it a a set of creeds? That we say we believe? Is it uh, a set of of legal codes of behavior that's brought us together? What is it that brought us together? A A person. And his name is Jesus. We have encountered him. We have this vision statement that we've come up with in the vineyard called Encounter Jesus, Live the Story. That's our center. You see, before theology comes spirituality. Before theology comes encounter with God. The Bible didn't come because some guy wrote up a bunch of creeds and codes. It came because some people encountered God and they documented it. And that's tricky because that God cannot be put in a box. He can't be put in a code. He can't be put into a creed. Creeds are helpful to help us articulate what we've seen of God to this point. But it's a person. And Paul is reminding them that the same mercy that I needed, you needed. The same grace you needed, I needed. It's the cross that brought us, crying out to, to, to the feet of Jesus for mercy, that brought us together. That's what's called us together. John said it this way. That which we've seen and heard with our eyes. We looked and our hands touched the word of life. We testify and proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. This is a living, dynamic fellowship shaped by the person of Jesus Christ. So Paul writes these words. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, Uh uh-oh, there it is again, in the name. So it's, what's your family name? What's your resemblance? What's brought us together It's the realization that doesn't matter whether you come from the Far East or South America or from Europe. doesn't matter whether you come from upper class, lower class, whether you're male or female, what your social status is, that if you have met Jesus, what you and I have in common is greater than all our differences. This is what Paul's after here. But often, what do we do in the church? We look at how different... Well, they're not my type. Well, we're not compatible. Compatible, shamatable. That's a stupid word and it doesn't belong in the church. Listen, if you belong to Christ, you're compatible with me. We're in the same body. We're in the same family. I got bad news for you. We're going to spend eternity together. <laughs> I appeal to you, Paul says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you. Now, the the literal Greek there is that you all speak the same thing. I don't know, that sounds like a cult to me. But what's he saying there? Well, we've been doing it all morning. Did you notice we were singing the same songs? Did you notice we were reading the same prayers? Did you notice we were reading the same scripture? What are we doing? We are speaking the same thing. We are affirming our commonality. We are affirming that the commonness that we have amongst us that transcends our differences. That's what we're affirming. But so often we focus on how we're different. We focus, and, we're, and there's a place for that. I'm not, I'm not saying that's wrong, but often the spirit in which we focus on how we're different is what's wrong. It's the heart of it. So speaking the same thing means literally learning how to, in Jesus' words in Matthew... The word, the Greek word for agreeing is symphonio. Now, I don't know about you, but I love the symphony. We don't go that often, but when I do go, I notice the, the thing that I must say about the symphony is its unity and diversity. Yeah. Nobody's playing. No, no, there, there's so much diversity in instruments. There's so much in, in, uh, diversity even in the notes they play but they're not playing 35 different songs at the same time. They're playing the same song, but there's different notes, different harmonies, different instruments, and there's just this, the Holy Spirit conductor is just a whoo, right? Isn't that what's happening? That word symphonia, isn't that the interesting that they, that they picked that word in the English to mean symphony? That you harmonize. It means that when I'm together with you, that I'm, I'm not trying to be prominent, I'm trying to harmonize. I'm looking for ways to harmonize so that the, the song can sound better. Right? Thanks, Veronica. Now look at this. So you, that, uh, that you all agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. Now I'm going to get back to that in a minute. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household. Is that, is that your family? have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas or Peter. And the other, they're really spiritual, I follow Christ. Now, Paul got a very reliable report here. And... Um, he here's a disturbing report on what the church looked like in Corinth and I found a cartoon that kind of maybe helps us visitors to Pine Point Church could sense a cliquishness among the congregation subtle though it was And then I like this one I told you you'd like our pastor so There's the dude and, and I think party spirit is, is often we gravitate to leaders that we most resonate with. Yeah. If we have a prophetic personality, then we like the prophets. If we're a teaching personality, we like the teachers. That's solid teaching, right? That's just been a common problem. But I, I think that Paul gets to the heart, and, and there's a whole chapter we're trying to tackle here today, but I think he gets to the heart of it in this passage we've just read. And so I want to look again at verse 10. He says, and let's all read it together. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Now in the Greek, that, that phrase, perfectly united that I've underlined there, is not... Uh, uh, two words, it's, it's a singular word, uh, and I'm not sure if I'm saying it right, catartismani, something like that. And it's the same word, same root, for when Jesus went uh, looking for his disciples and he called, remember, to, to, to two of them, and it says they were mending their nets, So that, it it literally has to do with repair. So Paul, first of all, when he says, I want you to be perfectly united, that word kateresm, I can't even say it, um, literally says there's some repair work that needs to be done. The church is torn. So I want to ask you, where is there a need for repair work in relationships in your life today? In the church in the family of God, in your life. Because Paul says the first step is to work on the repairs. And we all know that if the nets are broken, you're not going to catch fish. And if the church is divided, Paul said, you're not going to catch the harvest. You're not going to reach the lost. That apologetic has been damaged. By this will all men know you're his disciples, by your love for one another. That division is destroying the harvest. So, do the repair work. It's also the same word that Don used a few weeks ago from Galatians 6 when it says, If anybody's overtaken with a fault, you who are spiritual, restore. Do the repair work. So, it has to do with re- restoring people that have fallen away. Who do you know that, that is like that lone sheep that's become isolated? And, 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 you know, some of you reached out to David so beautifully when in that isolation, you know, that. Uh, Uh, infested apartment you know it wasn't easy but you had the shepherd's heart to reach out and to restore and to and to love that's God's heart do the repair work the second thing that this word means is to to make perfect or complete now how do we do that in the context of relationships the fact is this we need each other I am incomplete without you. My, my gifts are not enough for me to accomplish the vision that God has called me to do. And neither are your gifts. We need one another. There's a harmony and a blending and a symphony. It's just like getting up with that lone violin, how wonderful the solo is. But it only can take us so far in the composition. So it's, there's, a, there's a recognition of our need for one another, that we are incomplete as the body of Christ without all of the gifts. And some of those gifts clash with our gifts that seem to. They seem to be almost opposite. We seem so opposite to each other. But some, some of the people that you seem to dislike the most naturally, that you feel the most uh, unattracted to or least resonating with, are sometimes the gifts that you most need, that I most need to do what God has called me to do. So we cannot go it alone. We cannot do it alone. And so that's the second thing, is, is, is there's a completion, recognizing our need. Thirdly, exp- for those that we struggle with in relationship, f- exploring the strengths of their shadow side. Per- every person's strength has shadow side. There's, there's weaknesses that come with people's strengths and Sometimes if there's personality clashes, we feel this, this uh, tension and relational breakdown and communication breakdown. But Paul is, is arguing for work hard at embracing diversity. You'll be richer for it. And there are strengths to the shadow side of that personality that you're in conflict with that will help you do what God's called you to do. There's no such thing, as I said earlier, as incompatible. How many marriages break down and they use that term incompatible? It's not incompatible. It's a lack of love. It's a lack of willingness to work hard at celebrating the diversity instead of grieving it. And fourthly, work at finding the fit. This word uh, about... uh, Caterhism literally means it's like it's like doing a jigsaw puzzle. It's like getting to know the pieces and and how they fit. And and you know, when you do jigsaw puzzles, they're sorting out, isn't there? You you find the edges and you're you look at different pieces, you find compatible pieces like that. And you're wh- what's going to fit together. And there's a sense in. In, in our relationships with one another, I believe moving forward into this next season as a church that we're going to have a greater understanding and insight of our gifts and our callings and we need to be more intentional about that. It was such a joy for me coming back from Rockridge. I, I just asked Wade a few questions about what wires him and what... What gives him his, his passion and, and, and what drives him and, and, and what drains him of life. And it was just wonderful just to hear. And as he shared in the car coming back, I just thought, God, we need this guy. We need, we need to unleash him to be who God's called him to be. The church is going to be stronger for it. The body of Christ is going to be stronger for it. I'm going to be stronger for it. There's things that he has in him that I'm not wired for. And as we, as we take the time to work hard and listen to one another and, and celebrate one another's differences and, and cheer each other on, uh, it brings life and health to the body. So work hard at, at finding the fit, not, not having a kind of a pigeonhole idea of, of what we need done and then trying to jam people into it. That's not, puzzle. That's not the puzzle idea. But it's, it's celebrating the diversity and then saying, Lord, show us where this best fits and how they work in relationship. And finally, learn to disagree well. And boy, have we done this lousy in the church, haven't we? Learn to disagree well. In fact, the fact of the matter is we've been horrible at this through history often. It's because what happens is two people, scholarly, gifted, come, love God. They both love Jesus. They come to the same scripture and they see two different things. And so I remember driving by this citadel in Switzerland and Marcus pointed it out to me and he said there were thousands of Anabaptists that were drowned by other Christians in this fortress. You know why? Because they believed in immersion by baptism. Baptism by immersion. And so Reformed Christians saw them as heretics. They believed the godly thing to do was drown them teach him a lesson. That is nothing. Have you read about the 30 years religious wars in France and in Europe? These were Christians from Catholic states, Protestant states, taking turns, pillaging, plundering one another in the name of God. And finally, it was out of this terrible, terrible time that a German... Uh, Pietus by the name of Rupert Maldanius came up with this cry in necessarius unitas in dubious libertas in omnibus caritas Latin, what does it mean? In necessary things, unity in doubtful things liberty in all things compassion you know throughout history to disagree has meant the loss of a job imprisonment or even death since the reformation you know before the reformation we, we just killed them they disagreed but after the reformation we just took turns excommunicating each other as one person said the body of Christ has had the habit of dismembering itself we excommunicate ourselves. I don't agree with you I'll just start my own denomination I'll become the pope in fact that's what one person described the post reformation was everybody's their own pope. The last reading I had there is over 16,000 Protestant denominations and there are five new denominations being formed every week because we don't know how to disagree well. And I believe that Jesus prayer is crying out to be answered. And I'm not saying every new denomination is wrong. I think God births new movements. There's apostolic networks that are formed that are missional in in, in basis. But too many are not. Too many are because of pride, self-centeredness. So the question is, is there a better way? Because the church loses sight of this way, Paul lays out for us in this passage, We've lost our way in regards to being people of peace. So he says this. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus. Remember we mentioned him? And Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And Before I read this last slide from this passage, I think there's actually two, two more here, but... Let me just say this, by the standards of human, all the standards, all the standards of human beauty, wisdom, glory, or anything that would be impressive, the cross is an affront and an offense to that. The cross was the worst kind of death that was consigned only for, the criminals were consigned to, slaves, people who had no name, or were rebels to the empire. And it was a lesson. And it was was intentionally designed to shame, humiliate, and be a long, prolonged, painful death. To send a message. Don't mess with the empire. Don't mess with us. And so Jesus died this gruesome death, this painful death, this shameful death, and Paul says that is the wisdom of God. That is the power of God. That is where any of us, if we have anything to glory in, as we sang earlier, will glory in. And I believe it's a lack of grasping that that has caused so much division. I believe that we have, as Joanna shared last week, we find our boasting in other things, subtly, rather than in the cross. So I believe the Lord is calling us to this, and we're going to explore this in the weeks to come. What does it mean to be a community shaped by the cross? Living out the lifestyle of the cross. Let's finish our text. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Now, Paul here is reminding them that they are a community that's very personality is shaped, its very character is shaped. It's very spirit is shaped by the cross. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Now notice he doesn't say not any. Some were. The city treasurer was part of the church in Corinth. The synagogue leaders were the church in Corinth. But they were a minority. Most of them kind of looked like Vancouver Eastside Vineyard. But God chose, verse 27, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. This, this literally means people that had no name, people that had no family, people like David Johnson, who, whose only close of kin is he can just give his pastor's name. That's what Paul means that God has chosen the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before Him. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us that cross, that bloody, gruesome cross, that means by which God's heaven's gates were opened and mercy as floods poured over us and heaven kissed this guilty earth and a way was open even though I was a vile sinner with no hope of any redemption totally driven by lust and pride and and fear that he reached down he reached down he reached way down in the cross and he picked me up out of the horrible pit in the miry clay and set my feet on a solid rock. So because of him you are in Christ, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness. Why am I righteous? Is it because I prayed an hour today? Is it because I read my Bible? Is it because I have spiritual disciplines? There's only one hope of righteousness. And I pray this every day. Jesus, you are my only hope of righteousness. You are my righteousness. You are my only hope of holiness. You are my holiness. You are my only hope of redemption. You are my redemption. You're my wisdom. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The message says, that's why we are saying, if you're going to blow a horn, blow a trumpet for God. I love that. He says... He says, take a look, friends, at you who, when you got called into this life, I don't see many of the brightest and the best among you, not many influential, not many high society families. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses? He chose these nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies. That makes it quite clear that none of you can get by with blowing your own horn before God. Everything that we have, right thinking and right living, a clean slate and a fresh start, comes from God by the way of Jesus Christ. That's why we have this saying, if you're going to blow a horn, blow a trumpet for God. <laughs> okay. So, Rupertus Maldenius. this was picked up by Richard Baxter, the Puritans in the 1600s, in necessarius unitas, in libertas. In omnibus caritas, in necessary things unity, in doubtful things liberty. When we disagree on things, give each other liberty. Can we can we do it this time without killing each other? Without excommunicating each other? In all things, compassion. Which begs the million-dollar question: What happens when we disagree on what's necessary? On the center, there's some huge disagreements going on in the evangelical world today. Huge, gigantic disagreements. Where you got two people that are incredibly godly, love scripture, love Christ, but are just falling on the opposite side of an issue. So I've learned to ask two questions. Number one, this person that I'm disagreeing with is it possible that they could spend eternity in heaven? And secondly, is there a slight chance, teeny-weeny-weeny chance, that I could be wrong, that I might be wrong? Right? The third thing is, even if I disagree with someone can I argue their position well? Can I know their point of view so well that I can argue it convincingly? Because until you have, you don't know what you're disagreeing with. And you don't know their heart. Because it's not just finding out what their position is, it's knowing their heart that's important. So, if you're not getting all this today, don't worry. I'm going to belabel this until you're going to be sick to your stomach. And in all things, show compassion. Even if if with tears, we have to say, we can't agree with that. We can't agree to that. But we love you and bless you because we're we're not your master. You're another person's master. We will not judge another person's servant. And we commend you to God. So the message of the cross, proclaimed and lived, provides the foundation for us to find unity and diversity and be an agent of peace in a fractured world. So I believe Jesus is calling us to just ask what it means to live that message out. So three questions that we'll go through here for your small groups and for your own reflection. Where are there areas of conflict in my life that need repair? What steps will I take? The Lord's showing me some repair that needs to be done this week for me personally that I'm, I'm, I'm seeking to, to, to live out. More in the area of the restoration thing, but just some lost sheep that need to be pursued. Secondly, what are some steps I can take to celebrate diversity in my circle of relationships with those whom I differ on issues, personality, priorities, and other ways? If somebody you don't jive with, somebody you don't connect with, have you sat down and just asked them some good questions and listened to them? And by the way, if somebody's doing that, don't assume that they don't jive with you. (laughs) It's just a good practice anyway. But I think particularly with those that all we can see is their shadow side The big, looming shadow. (laughs) And thirdly, how can these principles apply to how we respond to our surrounding culture? Because we live in neighborhoods, schools, universities, businesses of diversity, don't we? And how can we be people of peace? Because I found what the reformers found is true is that there is a thing called common grace at work in our communities. We can work with that grace. See the kingdom come. So Lord, would you teach us and help us to to be people of peace? Not false peace, but a peace that is grounded in the cross of Christ. Would you teach us, Lord, to, to do business with those things that cause conflict that are not of you. Lord, we know sometimes there is an offense to the cross. We know sometimes there is conflict because of the clash between good and evil. But so often, Lord, it's unnecessary because of our own pride, our own self-righteousness. Yeah. Come Holy Spirit. One thing I felt the Lord wanted to do today is, uh, as I was preparing, I was really struck by the place of people in in this account, both in Corinthians as well as in Philippi, who were people of business, who had so integrated this idea and understanding of business and profit. And making money but they were kingdom people they were given for the kingdom of God and I feel like the Lord wants to give a a business blessing today where you discover the triple bottom line triple bottom line being not just money money's important but also people and the environment maybe a quadruple bottom line God spirituality mission I just feel like the Lord wants to bless some people today. I just, I just feel like in this season of transition that we're going through, there's going to be an unleashing. I believe God's blessing is on Monica, and on Gloria, Wade. And, uh, and if, and if, you're, if the, the Lord's just speaking to you in that area, I, I believe he wants to bless us so that people can be freed up for the gospel and the kingdom can go forward. It takes money. Missions is the most costly enterprise in, in, in world history. So it's not something we should be afraid of. Obviously, we ha- it has its hazards and dangers. But if people are seeking first the kingdom of God and have God's heart... So why don't we stand? And Yep. Uh,
1: just a very, very... Uh, I think it's quite narrow word, but it's a word about... Uh, Some of you have been in proximity to an angry person or an angry communication that's come to you, whether it's in your work or in your home. And I just had just the scripture come, a soft answer turns away wrath. So instead of confrontation where you're trying to grapple with this uh, angry, frustrated person, somehow that the Lord would give you the softness. That he would just miraculously, supernatural, give you an ability to be soft, have a soft answer that would repel that anger. That's just, it's almost like a demonic attack.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. So come Holy Spirit. I just want to pray. I just feel like we're to to pray and bless those that, the the ones I've mentioned that have a heart for, for business, kingdom business. I want us to just lay hands on them. Is there anybody else that has that, that I missed today? Just raise your hand. Stephen? Yeah. Oh, yeah. What am I thinking? Dean? Amen. Yeah, somebody could... I just want to bless Dean. Dean, this is a new season for you, the season of our church. Uh, There's a new season for you as well. So I'd I'd, I'd like some people to lay hands on Dean. I just want to bless them. If you have to go, you can go because I know we're over our time. But I just... We won't take long. Some people could bless Wade. I just love Wade's vision. Just love his heart. And I, wanna, I, just, I just feel like we as a church need to make room for that. So in the name of Jesus, we just release the blessing of Abraham. I will bless you. And I will make you a blessing. So that in you and through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. We release the family blessing. We release, Lord. That promise that you would expand our sphere. Keep us from evil. Come, Lord. Come, Lord. And Lord, we just break off the attacks. I just see an attack on the supply line. Sometimes in the Old Testament the enemy would surround a city and besiege it and cut off the supply lines. So I break off the siege on the supply lines. In the name of Jesus, we release resource, we release abundance, we release blessing. Lord, I pray for just a radical new spirit of generosity on us, Lord. We were just, like Abraham, it says that You said, because you have withheld nothing from me, there is nothing I will withhold from you. And I just want to declare that for each one of you. You are kingdom people. I want to affirm you. Because you've withheld nothing, Wade. Nothing, Stephen, Monica, Gloria, Dean. Because you've withheld nothing from me, I will withhold nothing from you. I just hear that word, just God, just God. You know, we talk about abandoning ourselves to God. God's saying, do you know how abandoned I am to you? I'm sold out to you. If God be for you, who can be against you? So come, Lord. And we break the spirit of poverty. And it's, by definition, it's, I never have enough. I just don't have enough. I'm always short. I'm always tight. And so we live our lives that way. We make our decisions that way. Our whole mindset is that way. I break the spirit of poverty. In Jesus' name. The Lord Jesus, though he is rich, he became poor so that we, through his poverty, might be made rich. So we thank you, Lord. You've broken that spirit of poverty that we could become of the family of Abraham and inherit the blessing of Abraham that your radical embrace could be extended, Lord. Just bless this heart, Lord. Bless bless the choose and their heart, God, for the kingdom, their kingdom family. Bless them, Lord. The heart for mission to extend your radical embrace. Come, Lord Jesus. We release innovation and creativity. Good ideas from the Father. Just alertness and vigilance to opportunities to expand the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name. Bless Dan, Lord. We just pray for your provision for him. For open doors that I had a word spoken over to me over me this week by someone when we were praying about our church building and, and it was about why would God ever say this season in this church is in, is coming to an end if he didn't have something way better for you so I just hear that for you dad just way better way better way better thank you Jesus Hallelujah. Well, if you'd like further prayer, just, just don't, I don't want to interrupt because the Lord is moving and touching, so I'm just going to bless you if you need to get your kids or you got to go rescue your roast or whatever it is. Have a wonderful Victoria Day weekend. And just we'll see you next Sunday.